You are listening to the Midtown Church Podcast, a ministry that exists to make Jesus known. If I haven't met you before, my name is Norm. We're in a study of the book of Ephesians. So I invite you to take your Bibles out and turn to Ephesians chapter 4. If you were with us last week, you'll remember that the theme of last week, Pat's message coming out of last week's text, was all about unity and oneness. If you just go to the very top of Ephesians 4, just take a look at verse 2. It'll remind you of last week. We are called to humility and gentleness, patience, bearing with one another in love, so that we are eager, so we can be eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. Why? Why should we be eager to maintain this unity? Because there's one body and there's one spirit and there's one hope and there's one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father in all, above all, and so on. Unity coming out of that oneness. It's pretty clear. We are to be eager to maintain it which actually backs up what we looked at in chapters two and three before our Easter break. If you remember, we talked about a lot, uh, uh, talked a lot about the unity that is ours in Christ, that now here in the church, there is no longer any Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male or female, barbarian or Scythian. By the way, barbarians, Scythians, they were the individuals that lived to the, in places where people didn't go. Uh, they were barbarians. They were warriors. They were the less educated crowd and so forth. So here, no male, female, slave, free, barbarian, or Scythian. Why? For we are all one in Christ. No more divisions. Remember chapter 2 and chapter 3. No more dividing walls of hostility because of what Jesus has done. Because of the gospel. And therefore, there are no more races and genders and bosses and employees and classes and parents or children or leaders in the church because of the gospel, right? I mean, how can you have unity and oneness in the church with all that kind of diversity? You shouldn't have women's Bible studies in the church. You shouldn't have men's breakfasts. You you shouldn't have kids' classes. You shouldn't have youth groups. You shouldn't have family ministries. You shouldn't have marketplace ministries. You shouldn't have men's bathrooms. You shouldn't have women's bathrooms because of the gospel, right? Denominations of the devil. If you're, if you're a business owner and you have employees, well, you should repent. If you think you can tell your daughter or your son as a parent to be home by 8 o'clock tonight, then, then you don't understand oneness in Christ. Right? That's unity. That's oneness because of the gospel. And the church that I pastored before this one, early on, I wanted to start a woman's Bible study. We were about a year in, and I thought, hey, there's some women in our church that are yearning for a Bible study to start, and so we wanted to get one going. And when I mentioned this to one of our leaders, she said we shouldn't call it women's Bible study because here 
In the church, there is no male or female. And she had a verse. But what do you do with Paul writing, the same one who wrote that there is no male or female, for example, what Paul writes in Titus 2.4 when he says that older women should teach younger women. Or what Paul also writes in 1 Timothy 5 that young men should treat older men like fathers. And what do you do with Jesus saying in Matthew 19 that when a, a man leaves his father and mother, a man leaves his father and mother, that he should be united to his wife. What, what do you do with the fact that God himself, before the fall, created us in Genesis 1 as male and female? What, what, what do you do with Paul in 1 Timothy 6, speaking to, in that text, speaking to the rich among us in the church? If you're rich in the church, this is how you should live. What do you do with that? Or as we will see later in this letter, Paul instructing masters and slaves in the church. Instructing husbands and wives in the church. Instructing parents and kids in the church. And I could give you greater or a greater example set than this. But I think I'm making my point. Here, here's my overarching premise for today's message. The call for unity in the church doesn't remove the beauty of the diversity in the church. In fact, diversity in the church is necessary for the maturity of the church, which is to be the goal of the church, as we will see. Unity with diversity unto maturity. If I was going to title this message anyway, that would be how I would title it. Unity with diversity unto maturity. To put it another way, God is growing a garden, but we're not all tulips. You know what I mean? I mean, a garden with only tulips that doesn't have roses in it, doesn't have begonias in it, doesn't have Easter lilies in it, it'd be a sad garden. That's not the garden that God is growing. My point is we're called to unity, but we're not called to uniformity. Diversity within our commitment to unity and oneness. Our, our text today in Ephesians 4 is uh, verses 7 to 16, but I, I want to begin by reading verses 11 to 16. So take a look at it, find it in your Bibles, whatever form they come in. Paul begins, and he gave, that's Jesus, he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried out by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. That's the end game. We're to be equipped 
and built up and grow up in every way into him who is, is the head. Paul uses a lot of different metaphors. One of them is a, a metaphor of a child and, a, and an adult. We aren't to be children, meaning we aren't to be immature. We are to be mucher. We're, we're not to be like a ship that's tossed to and fro in, in the waves and the storms that come. We're, we're to be bedrocked with every part of the body doing its work. Here is how I would sum up verses 11 to 16. But the body of the church, that's you and me, is to match the head of the church. The body of the church is to match the head of the church. The body is you and me. The head is Christ. That's verses 11 to 16. That is the goal of the church. And sadly, as we know, that's not always the case. I borrow the following illustration from Paul Brand and a, a great book that he read, or wrote that I've read uh, numerous times. But in, in it, he speaks of Stephen Hawking. Stephen Hawking was a theoretical physicist. He was a cosmologist. He was a professor of mathematics for 30 years at Cambridge University. He was also a, a fellow of the Royal Society. I... I don't agree with where Hawking landed in his worldview, but what can't be denied is that he was, he was brilliant in the realm of, of mathematics, astrophysics, and, and cosmology. His head was exceptional, but his body was not. Hawking suffered from ALS, which paralyzed him for years and kept him in a wheelchair for much of his life until he died in, in 2018. I obviously didn't know Stephen Hawking, but here's my guess. He would have wished his body matched his head. This is to be the goal of the church. And again, that's verses 11 to 16. Just listen to verses 15 and 16 one more time. Rather, Paul says, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head. Into Christ. From whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Did you hear that? The body is to match the head. But here's the question that we're going to spend the rest of our time answering this morning. How do we get there? How do we get there? How do we attain maturity? How does Midtown, this, this little local church body, how do we attain maturity? Let me give you three ways coming out of our text. Here's the first. By way of the gifts that Jesus gives. That's number one. This takes us back to the beginning of our text. Take a look at verse 7. We'll read to verse 10. But grace, by the way, just stop there. That's a really important but, starting verse 7. Because but is a word of contrast. Yes? Uh, he hates you, but I love you. Or go back to chapter 2. You're dead in your trespasses and sins, but God. Right? That's this, but now this. It's a word of contrast. But that stands out. This but in verse 7. Why? Because 
What Paul has been talking about, what we looked at in verses 1 to 6, is unity and oneness, as we talked about at the beginning. But now grace, but grace, here's the diversity. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, this is a a quote out of Psalm 68, when he ascended on high, he led a, a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. Now, I recognize that these four verses can sound rather confusing, so let me see if I can help by summing up what Paul is saying here. About 2,000 or so years ago, Jesus Jesus, in humility, descended to earth. He came, he lived, he died, he was buried, he rose, and he conquered. And then he ascended, and he was coronated. He sits at the right hand of the Father. Take a look at verse 10. He ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things, meaning he might reign supreme over all things. So we have humiliation of Jesus on the front end with his descending to earth, but now we have the exaltation on the back end far above all the heavens. But here's the thing that's really important for us to recognize out of these verses. When he ascended as a conquering king, he gave us the spoils of war. Jesus had victory. And like a good conquering king, he gave his people the spoils of war. And what did he give? What did our king give to us? Look at verse 7. We see the answer there. Grace was given to each one of us. That's what he gave us. But this is not saving grace. This this is grace, as we see in verse 8, given in the form of gifts that he gives to his followers. So this takes us back to what we saw back in chapter 1. It reminds us of something that we learned there, that in chapter 1, we learned that when Jesus ascended to the heavens, he didn't leave us on our own. He sent the Holy Spirit who seals us and guarantees our future inheritance. But what we're discovering now in chapter 4 is that Jesus didn't only give us the gifts, excuse me, only gifted with the Spirit. He gave us gifts by way of the Spirit. Yes, we all have the Spirit, but we also have gifts that the Spirit brings. And this is what Jesus has left us with. And this is where our maturity begins. This is where it begins. But please hear me when I say that. Our maturity, the church's maturity, doesn't begin with our gifts. It begins with Jesus' victory leading to our gifts. It begins with what Jesus accomplished for us. And therefore, when we are serving the church by way of our gifts, we're actually benefiting by way of the, from the victory of Jesus at the cross. You see, it's Jesus' victory at the cross that has translated into grace enabling us to serve. If it wasn't this way, Midtown, if it wasn't this way, we couldn't expect much from what we do. 
But what we do matters. Why? Because grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Again, that's verse 7. And what does this mean to us? Well, it means that your gift, my gift, isn't as much as about you or me, but it's about Jesus more so and what he did for, for you and me. But I I say that to encourage you for any time you use your gift, you make much of Jesus because of, of what he did to grace you with it. It honors his victory. It, it honors his ascension. It, it honors his coronation. When, when you teach a class, when you greet somebody at the door on a, on a Sunday, whenever we, remember those days? When you greet somebody at the door, when you invite a neighbor over for coffee, you declare to the heavenlies, the principalities and the powers in the air, you declare to them that Jesus won. Every time you do something by way of your gift. You may think it's something small, insignificant. No, the guys running the cameras today, soundboard, upstairs, the band, they're declaring to the heavenlies right now that Jesus won. Why? Because our gifts come by way of Jesus' victory. When he ascended, he he gave gifts to men and women. And that's why we should serve in the church. Because when we serve, don't serve in the church because there's a need. Don't serve in the church because you have some free time. Don't serve in the church because you're feeling guilty because you haven't served before. Serve in the church because every time you do, every time you do, You make much of Jesus. That's why. And what we see also in verse 7 is that our victorious king isn't stingy. He, He gives gifts to each one of us. Every single follower of Jesus has received the grace of serving in Jesus' church. Listen to what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 12. You can read this on the screen. Paul writes, now, there are varieties of gifts, but the same spirit, and there are varieties of service, but the same Lord, and there are varieties of activities, but it is, it is the same God who empowers them all and everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the spirit for the common good. That's the premise for today. To each is given for the common good. Unity with diversity. And not just some are given, all are given, and not just for me and you, for us. And and do you know why? Do you know why there needs to be diversity in the church? Why there's not just one church or one denomination as well? The reason is because the glory and splendor of Jesus can't be encapsulated in one person. Or one church. Or one denomination or or one network, or even one movement, it takes billions of us to even begin to scratch the surface of the glory and the grandeur and the splendor of Jesus. That's why. What are the gifts? I've talked about the fact that we get, what are they? Well, depending on how you categorize them, there are about 20 or so gifts mentioned in the New Testament. 
Um, For example, in Romans 12, the gift of prophecy, service, teaching, exhortation, giving or contribution, leadership and mercy are, are listed there. In 1 Corinthians 12, wisdom, knowledge, faith, healing, miracle, miracles, prophecy, distinguishing of spirits, tongues, interpretation of tongues, apostleship, prophecy, teaching, administration. I, I mentioned prophecy twice, are mentioned there. 1 Corinthians 13 also mentions tongues and prophecy, knowledge, faith, and giving, but it also adds perhaps the gift of martyrdom, which is a a possibility, but it's a gift you can only use one time, so it's hard to know if it's a gift or not. Matthew 19, when Jesus talks about marriage, he talks about celibacy as well, and he talks about it as a gift, so perhaps celibacy or, or a lifetime of singleness is a gift too. Interestingly, you won't find one place that lists all the gifts together. Paul actually lays out a different set of lifts, gifts in 1 Corinthians 12 as he does in, than he does in Rome, Romans 12. Peter simply categorizes the gifts under speaking gifts and serving gifts. He doesn't really give a list at all. My personal opinion coming out of that is that the New T- Testament doesn't give us an exhaustive list of spiritual gifts. You may disagree with that, and that's okay, because that's not where our oneness and unity is to be found anyways. Our oneness and unity isn't to be found in our view on the spiritual gifts. There are also those known as cessationists in the church today who hold that the gifts, especially those referred to as sign gifts, the more quote-unquote supernatural gifts, tongues, interpretations, healings, things like that, cease to exist with the death of the apostles and the closing of the canon of Scripture, what we call now the 66 books of the Bible. Midtown is not cessationist, although I have heroes in the faith that are. I have great respect for them, but we are continuationists, meaning we hold that all gifts are present today, but we are not Pentecostal. We do not believe that that tongues is a necessary sign of the infilling of the Holy Spirit. As Paul asks rhetorically in, in, in 1 Corinthians 12, 30, do all speak in tongues? The answer is no. If you go back to verse 7, and notice the, uh, the word grace there again, in the Greek that word is charis. We get the word charisma or charismatic from it. In church, in church circles, the word charismatic has, has all sorts of definitions given by people. It's, it's, be, it's become a word that means all sorts of things in the church. But when used properly, when used correctly, when used literally, it simply means that you believe all gifts are present today. To be a charismatic is to be a continuationist. Personally speaking, I am cautiously charismatic. I I say that because I have seen too much abuse and flippancy over the years when with things credited to the spirit that I see nowhere in the scriptures. I have also seen a lot of arrogance by some in their supposed use use of the gifts that I'm uncomfortable with. I mean, how can you have a manifestation of the spirit if you display no fruit of the spirit? And how can you have a manifestation of the Spirit that runs contrary to the book the Spirit wrote? 
So that's why I'm cautious. And yet I've seen healings firsthand. I've, I've heard tongues spoken. I, I've evidenced discernment of, of spirits and I've received words of prophecy. And so I'm open, but I want to be discerning. I, I also want more Holy Spirit in my life. How about you? And yet when I say that, I'm also aware that at the end of the age, people will say, did we not prophesy in your name? And did we not cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? Prophecy, miracles, discernment of spirits in your name. And Jesus will say at the end of the age, I never knew you. So if I feel a little schizophrenic to you, you'll understand why. I'm open, but I'm cautious. I have good friends in my life that display what I would call sign gifts on a consistent basis. I'm open to that. I love it, but I've seen too much abuse too. So that's why I ride this kind of tight wire in regards to this discussion. But back to our text and back to the the goal that we have, maturity. That's where maturity begins, by way of the gifts that Jesus gives. But there's more, for Paul says maturity second comes by way of the leaders Jesus calls. Take a look at verse 11. And he, Jesus, gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers. So Jesus gives gifts to the church, meaning us, every follower of Jesus, but he also gives the church leaders. He gives leaders to the church, which I know sounds pretty self-aggrandizing because I am a leader in the church, so it's a little bit weird to talk about leaders in the church and the importance of leaders in the church, but in all seriousness, talking about this, do you know how important I am to Midtown? You should write this down. How important is Norm to Midtown? I am no more important to Midtown than you are. My my function and my role may be different, but my importance to this ministry is not. If I said to Paul, Paul, I am way more important to Midtown than anybody else, this is how he would respond. Take a look at 1 Corinthians 12 again. On the contrary, Norm... The parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable, and on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor. Just notice that. Just keep the the text on the screen. The parts of the body that seem to be weaker. By who? By us. And Paul said, they may seem to you, but they're not. You're wrong about that. And those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we think, not God, what we think We bestow the greater honor. And our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty or care, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has composed the body, so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacks it. That's why I say I'm no more important, you're no more important than anybody else in this ministry. Why? Because God composed this ministry. He put it together. My primary role at Midtown is pastor and teacher. 
There are far more gifted pastors and teachers than me. You, you have me. My primary job description is I am to build up those who came before me, build upon, excuse me, those who came before me and equip you, the saints, for works of ministry. That's my primary job description. My ministry is to equip you for your ministry. Who came before me? When I say I'm to build upon those who came before me, well, we, we have the answer in verse 11. The apostles came before me. The prophets and evangelists along with pastors and teachers. Just take a look at that verse. Put your pretty eyes down in verse 11. When you go back there, I believe the apostles and the prophets mentioned here should take us back to chapter 2, verse 20, where Paul writes that the church was built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Meaning, Paul is not talking primarily here about a spiritual gift as much as an office or a position within the church. I'll get to the gifting of these in just a second, however. I believe this mention of apostles in verse 11 refers specifically to the 12, not Judas, but the replacement Matthias, and then Paul and a few others. And the prophets are those who help construct what we now call the New Testament. Do I believe that there is a gift of apostleship today? Yeah, of course I believe in the gift of of apostleship. Apostle simply means sent one. And so I believe that, for example, missionaries that are sent out or church planters that are sent out to start something from scratch must have the gift of apostleship. I also believe in the gift of prophecy. As Peter declared at the onset of the early church in Acts chapter 2, he said that in these days our sons and daughters will prophesy. So I believe in the gift, but I don't believe that words of prophecy today by those who have this gift are on par with the inspired word of God. Words of prophecy today don't bring new words. They build upon the words that have been already given. In these last days, according to Hebrews 1-2, God speaks to us by way of, of his son. And so words of prophecy today must make much of the work of Jesus, the fulfilling work of Jesus the consummating work of Jesus. They must, because that's how God speaks today. And thus, I don't believe in big A apostles being raised up today or big P prophets being raised up today. I believe those days are done. In spite of what people like Bill Johnson from Bethel Church says, I disagree vehemently with that. The foundation has been laid There is no need for a second foundation. I also believe in the gift of evangelism, but I believe the evangelist spoken of in verse 11 refers specifically to the early growth of the church. Philip, for example, the one who led the Ethiopian eunuch to Jesus in Acts 8 is referred to as the evangelist in Acts 21. And shepherds and pastors, shepherds, pastors, synonymous words, shepherds and pastors and teachers, they build upon the foundation of the early church in local church contexts as they stay devoted to the apostles' teaching. Just hang a left in your Bibles. Go back to 1 Corinthians 3. Let me show you what I mean by this. I don't have it on the screen. I'll just read it for you. But this builds upon what Paul is speaking of here. In verse 10, he says, 1 Corinthians 3, according to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is building upon it. 
Let each one take care of how he builds upon it. That's why I say we don't need a second foundation. The foundation has been laid. Paul planted Ephesus, the church in Ephesus, and he left Timothy there. Paul planted. Timothy started watering, and God gave growth. And therefore, as I said earlier, my job primarily is to equip you, the saints of Midtown, for the work of ministry building upon those who came before me. Is it my role alone? Of course not, and thank God for that. Pat spoke a wonderful equipping message last week, but we're just two. All pastors must be able to teach, but not all teachers are pastors. And by God's grace, when we open again, and we're even seeing this already, we will have other teachers in this ministry. We'll have kids workers and youth leaders and Bible study leaders. My wife, every single Wednesday, is equipping some of you for work of ministry. And mom and dad, you're primarily your kid's equipper. You're the primary teacher of your kids. You need to equip your kids and not simply rely on others. And how are we to equip? This answer deserves more time than I'm going to give it, but let me just simply say that, that it begins and ends with what Paul writes in 2 Timothy chapter 3 when he writes, All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction and for training in righteousness that the man of God, that the woman of God may be complete, equipped. There it is. For every good work. Equipping must start with the scriptures and it must end with the scriptures and it must be saturated in the scriptures or we can't be assured that we're equipping people for every good work. So two down, one to go. We reach maturity in the church by way of the gifts that Jesus gives and by way of the leaders Jesus calls. And finally, by each person doing their part. Look at verses 15 and 16 one more time. I know I've read them several times already, but it bears repeating. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped when each part is working properly. Underline that if you like underlining things. When each part is working properly makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Just listen to how Peter puts it in 1 Peter chapter 4. As each has received a gift, use it. Use it. Use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Don't bury it. Don't bury it. To borrow from Jesus and his parable of the talents, don't bury it. Invest it. Use it. You've been given grace in the form of a gift or possibly more than one. Use it. Use them for the good of the body. Why don't we, though? Why, why don't we use the gifts that have been given to us? Well, I've seen some very common reasons throughout the years. I, I think the biggest reason that people don't use the gifts, the gifts that they've been graced within the church, number one is apathy. I, I just don't think we burn. 
We don't burn hot for the ministry of Jesus in the church. I, th- I think apathy is, is a big one. I also think fear. I, I think we're, we're afraid to serve. We don't want to fail. We, we don't want to stand out, so we're fearful. I, I think also we're overcommitted. I think our lives are very busy. I think we've said yes to things that we shouldn't say yes to. But also sometimes in our lives, there are things that are placed on us that make us very busy as well. I, I, I think also there's a, a feeling of a lack of adequacy or a lack of importance, which I addressed earlier. There's no unimportant, unimportant gift in ministry in the church. Some feel in the church that they pay the pastor to do the work for them. You couldn't be more wrong. I'm not paid to live the Christian life for you. As someone said, I'm more a personal trainer, not a massage therapist. I'm called to equip, not to live for Jesus in your place. I also think there are people in the church, sadly, the older generation that go and say things like, you know what, I'm, I'm going to leave it to the younger people, I'm stepping off. You have no biblical allowance to do that. That's a cultural mindset. Uh, I've used this example before, but I've heard people in their 60s and 70s just talk with chagrin about 20-year-olds who spend a lot of time on, on their computers and playing whatever game, whatever game, and going, what a waste of a life. If you're 70 and you're doing nothing and you're sitting around just playing pinochle, you're doing the same thing. You're just grayer. None of us have the allowance to step off. If, if you've been gifted experience, use it. Train the younger. Come alongside of them. Mentor somebody. Mentor mentor a younger person who wasn't raised in a Christian home that would love to talk to somebody who's walked with Jesus for 30 or 40 or 60, 70 years. So I think that's a reason. If that's your reason, get back in the game. I also think that one of the reasons is that pastors get very territorial over their ministries. And they, ha- they, they hang on to it. They have to be involved in all of it. They get scared to hand it off. And so it limits the opportunities for you. I also think tied to this is that there are leaders in the church who have a small vision for the church. And as my mentor said to me, if you want to have big, big, big gifts in your church, you need to have a big vision for your church. Or they'll go somewhere else. Or they'll start their own thing. They'll give themselves to something that, that, that is is an allowance for the gifts that they have. (coughs) I also think that there are some of you who are using your gift right now and you just don't know it. Because here's the thing. When we get back to gathering, we're going to be here together for about an hour and a half every week. That's it. But we're the church as we scatter as much as when we gather And so it's quite possible right now you're serving, you're using your gift in your community or with a friend. You're coming alongside of people and loving on them. You're inviting people over. You're giving of your resources. You're calling someone who's hurting or going through a difficult time. You're using your gift. Our gifts aren't just to be exclusively used here under this roof. May it it never be. But during the week, in our neighborhoods, And then finally, I think there are times where you shouldn't use your gift in the church, at least not in the same way. Let me explain this. And I know my time is coming to an end. In 2016, um, I was privileged to go on a sabbatical. 
I had been serving at the church that I was in for 11 years. I had planted the church and it was an 11 year, it was just an odyssey. It was fast, it was busy. We planted one church, we planted four other churches. We had many moves. We just took on a $9 million mortgage in a building that we purchased downtown. Lots going on. And so at year 11, when I went on this sabbatical, I was tired. I was really tired. My sabbatical began, me and my wife were in New York City. We were there because I was serving on a church planting board and that was the last thing that I was gonna do before I went on my sabbatical and we were gonna go up to the east side of, eastern side of, of Canada and take a nice trip there with our family and all that. But I had this one last two day period in New York and I got up early one morning and I took my Bible, I went down to a cafe and I was reading through the gospels. My sabbatical was starting the next day and I, I came in that moment to Mark chapter 6, and this is what it said in Mark chapter 6. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. And when I read that, it was like Jesus just said to me, this is for you. You've done a lot. You've taught a lot. You've been busy. Come away for a while and rest. Some of you, that may be your situation right now. You're tired. Maybe you've been beat up a little bit. And maybe you need to pull back and just dine with Jesus a little bit. Not for a long time, but maybe that's what you need most of all. It doesn't mean that your gifts can't get used in those times. It may just be that they get used differently. And so that's another reason. Jesus gives you permission. At times, Jesus wants to take you out just so you have time to abide with him. Another question, again, I, I know my time is done, but I... I hear this a lot. The question is, how do I discover my spiritual gift? Let me go through these rather quickly. For one, you should have taken Nicole's class. That would have been helpful. But here's another. Do something. Just get going. Move. Just move. Start, start being involved. Most gifts are discovered in movement. Take some chances. Don't get handcuffed. Don't think that you have to learn what your gift is before you get involved. Evaluate yourself. What kind of person are you? Are you a people person or are you a behind the scenes person? Do you like to-do lists or do your eyes glaze over when you have a to-do list? Do you get nerdy when you go into Staples and just find that this is, your, this, is like, this is your utopia? Or would you rather spend three hours with someone talking about their life and going for a walk with them on, on the beach? Does it drive you nuts when the website isn't up to date? Are you that person? Do you cry for the lost? When you, when, you have a, when you have a day free, do you try to fill it with people or do you praise God that your day is free? Evaluate yourself. Ask others. Paul says to Timothy about having had his gift affirmed by those who laid hands on him. Look for fruit in your life. If you're a teacher, do people say, hey, I really enjoy your teaching? For example... Also, don't make the mistake of thinking that your formal training automatically translates into ministry. Just because you train to be a teacher, for example, doesn't mean that you have the spiritual gift of teaching. In the church that I came from, we had a, a guy on our elder team that was a partner in an accounting firm. Great guy. 
Great guy to have on our finance team, right? No, he hated it. That wasn't his spiritual gift. He wasn't an administrator. His spiritual gift was knowledge and teaching. That's where he, that's where he shined. Also, don't confuse gifts with ministries and effects. Very important. I believe I have the t- a teaching gift. You may argue with that, but I, I believe I have a teaching gift. You may have a teaching gift, but we may have different ministries. Your teaching gift may be used in a kid's class. Mine is behind the greatest pulpit, by the way, in the city of Vancouver. This is mine. My effect, different than your effect. You may teach to 12 kids for the rest of your life, and maybe I'll teach to more adults. I don't know. Same gift, different ministry, different effect. Don't compare yourself to others. Oh, I have more to say. I can't. I got to close. As I close, if the, if the goal for all of this is, is maturity... And maturity in the local church comes by way of the gifts that Jesus gives and the people, the leaders that he raises up, and lastly, by each of us doing our part, then as I wrap up and put a bow on this, what all-important question are we left with? What's the question? If the goal is maturity, what's the question? The question is, the all-important question is, what does maturity look like in the local church? Is maturity revealed in our involvement? Could be. Does it show up in our equipping and training others? Yeah, possibly. Is it demonstrated in our ability to resist human cunning and craftiness and and deceitful schemes? Well, absolutely. All of those are necessary signs of a church's maturity, but none of them are sufficient signs. So what is? What does maturity look like in a local church? One more time, and I'll close with this. Verse 15. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. There's our answer. Maturity looks like a body, body dedicated to truth, saturated in love, seeking to look more and more like Jesus every day. That's Maturity. Involvement, equipping, training, resisting are all simply a means to that end. And therefore, do you see how Jesus bookends this entire text? He's the securer of our gifts. He's the giver of our gifts. And he's the end goal of our gifts. In fact, in fact, Jesus is the gift of all gifts. For God so loved that he gave us Jesus and Midtown by use of our gifts, we give people Jesus too. Let me pray. And so Jesus, coming out of this text, we thank you. Our conquering king, we thank you for giving us the spoils of your victory. Grace, 
Grace certainly that saves, grace that certainly forgives, grace that strengthens, but also the grace of gifts to serve in the church, to make much of you. Jesus, by way of the spirit that you sent, would you help us as as a local ministry? Would you help us to have a great desire to attain this maturity? To be a people of love, committed to truth, looking more and more like you, the head, every, every day. That our body, this body, would match the head, you, Jesus, Christ Jesus. Help us. And it's in your name that I pray. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more information about Midtown, please go to mtownchurch.ca.